I'd love to have you take your Bibles as you do that and turn with me to a text that we visited last week, and we'll spend a few minutes here again. That is 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36. We'll make our way elsewhere, but that's where we'll be starting here. And I know that the sermon notes in your bulletin will be a help to you uh, in knowing where we're going here this morning. Uh, if you're, uh, along with me, a fan of various cartoons, the most important part in the Sunday paper, you will recognize Bill Keen as the, the artist behind Family Circle. Yes. Or Circus. Is it Circus? Yes, it is. Family Circus. Right. Well, of course, if you're an uninitiated, you know that that little cartoon one-panel strip is a, is, a, is a look at a young family, families with young kids, and, of course, the different things that kids do along the way. And in one of them that just shows up on a, a somewhat regular basis, you have the kids doing something they ought not to do. There are crayons on the wall or, you know, chaos reigning in the home. And there's a shadowy figure running away, uh, kind of outlined with a name on him. Bonus, bonus points to whoever gets that the right name. What does that say? See, you guys are just pay way too close attention to the, cart- to the cartoons. Yes, not me is the right answer. Um, I don't know what the bonus is, but you want it. Not me. And what Keen is wanting to do in that often repeated theme is to point to the propensity of our children and ultimately all of us as adults, that when something's taking place that ought not to happen, how, quick we, how quickly we say, wasn't my fault, I didn't do that, who did that, was that you? Some of us who were raised in families with a lot of kids uh, survived many things by doing exactly that. It was clearly her fault, I had five options, it was one of their faults, and of course with five sisters it probably was. <laughs> I say as a brother, goodness sakes, yes. It probably was, clearly their fault. Well, this morning, we want to to start in the Old Testament. I want to put a a, a historical context on a couple of things that relate to this year's Christmas production, and I'll comment about that. And then I want to go someplace very specific, and I'm just giving you a heads up about where we're going, because it's coming for you, okay? Under this category of the darkness and dealing with darkness, we want to talk about the theme of what do we do when the darkness is, is, is in fact, our fault? A season of darkness, a season of difficulty, when it is our fault. Not all the times that it isn't, but what do we do when it is? And there are some things we should talk about here. But um, along the way there, I want to pray with us, and then we're going to deal with some history and context and so on. But that's where I'm going, and I hope your heart will be ready to go there with me. So would you pray with me, please? Let's ask God's direction in our time in his word this morning. Our Father, as always, it is with great joy that we open the scriptures together, and we long for you to to take your word and by the Spirit of God to to shape our hearts, to prod those places that are hard, uh, places where maybe we've kept ourselves off limits from that deep work of the Spirit of God. And Lord, we long to have your light shine into to our darkness. Would you help us this morning to hear, hear the word of God and having heard it then to, to love it, to embrace it, and then to respond to it in faith. So we trust you for your work in us now. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
On your study sheet, of course, there is that section, uh, as you saw last week, if you were with us, giving a bit of context on Advent here at Sunset Bible Church. We follow a seven-year Advent teaching uh, plan that is original to us. And every year, there is a four-week preaching series that coincides with the stage production. That way, all of us as a church family are learning in these seven years what I think are key moments in the history of redemption. And so if you stick around, for, it'll take you seven years worth of showing up at Christmas, but you'll, you'll get some really key issues in terms of the history of the Bible and so on. And of course, you look there, you see we're right in the middle, a light in the darkness. I mentioned to us last week that each of these programs and preaching series have different moods to them. Some are a little more familiar, some are a little more upbeat and so on. And this year's is a little more reflective because of its topic. Now, thinking about God's presence in, in darkness, in our darkness, uh, it, it is reflective. I don't want to use the word somber. That may be overdoing it a bit. But it, it, it does cause us to reflect on the work of God in seasons of darkness in our own lives. And that's, that, I think, is a good thing. So this, this first section on your sermon notes, then, uh, beginning with Second Chronicles 36, I want to just look back with you on the historical setting that we'll be drawing on for not only our preaching series, but for the stage production you'll see this weekend. But in Second Chronicles 36, there's some things happening in history, and I want to just give you a crash course. Some of you are very familiar with Old Testament history, but a, a crash course, uh, nonetheless, that I think will help us all get on the same page. Of course, the Old Testament tells the story of God's uh, making the world. You find that at the very beginning in Genesis. Last week, we visited Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, and God beginning that process of calling out for himself a people to be his own special people. And, of course, identified as the nation of Israel. I'm skipping a whole lot of detail. But in, in, in the years that followed, Israel became a nation, 12 tribes, 12 groups you're familiar with. And you've heard us talk about this. If you hang out with us, you know that those 12 groups formed a nation. And then in 931, they had kind of like a civil war, like the, kind of like the U.S., except it ended uh, with division, so Israel as a nation, those 12 tribes split into two groups, the north and the south, 10 groups, 10 tribes in the north, and then two in the south. The 10 in the north went by the name Israel, the two in the south went by Judah, because Judah was one of those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And in 931, they kind of separated. They had their own kings and so on. The people in the north were Ophir, that is, no good kings, not one godly king in their whole years of existence. In the south, kind of went back and forth, good king, rascal, good king, rascal. You might say, well, that sounds familiar. Don't go there. It's not about, it's not about politics today. It's about history of Israel, okay? So 931, that. 722, now, next big event in the terms of history. The Assyrians came in and took that northern group captive, hauled them all away, a lot of bad things happened, and were knocking on the door to the south. And God interrupted that and sent them packing. So that was, that was 722. Now, speed ahead a few years, and we're at Second Chronicles 36. We're at the year 586, and, and God's people in the south had continually pushed back at God's prophets, God speaking to them, God calling them to turn to him. They had pushed back and said no time and time and time again. And there comes a moment in the history of a nation where God deals with them on that. And 586, the Babylonians came up and there were several deportations, but 586, is, I, I, you heard me say last week, it's kind of like when the lights went out in that southern kingdom. 
So I want to read some parts of that and just place this in its historical setting, but also to see the work of God. Because I'm reminding us here, history is full of God's faithfulness, it is, and human sin. I could have said despite human sin or uh, regardless, I didn't mean all that, I meant and. So God's faithfulness, yes, over and over again, and and human sin. So look with me at the text in front of you. Just a couple things I want to pull out. Verse 15, uh, the first part of that chapter, about the various kings who, who were the, the final leaders of that, that nation. But then in verse 15, text we read earlier uh, last week, uh, it says this, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising the words, and scoffing at his prophets. Imagine. Until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And then the next verse, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. And there begins a a paragraph or two that talks about the terrible things that happened. Is that foreign army came in, evil people, and, and took the place apart, took down God's house, melted the gold off of the walls, cut everything into pieces, and hauled it away to Babylon, burned the place down. And all this, of course, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, one of the prophets who spoke during that season of darkness. Now, I, 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 we're going to come back here in just a moment, but I want to I go to two other Old Testament texts. We'll come right back here. But I, again, I want us to see the faithfulness of God because... Um, when, I, when, I, when we talk together about darkness and the darkness, the seasons that are our fault, I, I would never want us to think that in times of struggle or difficulty, whether it's the ones that are our fault or the ones that aren't, that, aren't that, that, that God ever forsakes his people. Okay? We walk through seasons of darkness, as we'll say in a moment, that, that aren't our fault as well as those that, that are. And listen, if you're a child of God, he may discipline you, he may correct you, he never gives up on you. He never quits. Okay? That's, that's the point here. That's what I want you to see. So for this, I want to go back to two, two other texts, book of Deuteronomy first. And um, Deuteronomy, of course, uh, so named, the second telling of the law, Deutero, second, and Namas, law, second telling of the law, Moses, right at the end of the wilderness wandering, and he's, he's rehearsing again the, the history of Israel there in the, that wilderness time, and of course, concluding with Moses not able to go into the promised land. But there is something that's repeated, a number of things in the book of Deuteronomy, themes that show up again and again. It's like God keeps playing the tape. And in Deuteronomy 7, starting verse 8, you, you, you see something about, as I've put it, the amazing love of our sovereign God, both of, these, both of those key elements. So I read then Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, where God says uh, through Moses, of course, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, look at this, for his treasured possession. He's talking to sinners here that he, that he calls by his name. They're his you're a treasured possession, this nation. Can you imagine? God did not, God's chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you're the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And he goes on from there. In other words, 
God did not call you to himself. Please get this. Nation of Israel, then God's people today, a little different. I understand. God doesn't call us to himself because we're smarter than the average bear. Because you're nicer than other people. It's not that God looked around at planet Earth and said, I'm going to call the nice ones. I want the nice ones to go to heaven. See, let make a nice, nice group. No, no, that's, that's not the way it works. This text, God's chosen you to be his treasured possession, not because you were a whole bunch of you guys. No, nah, you really weren't. But it's because he loves you. Now, what kind of reason is that? Well, it is a reason. He loves you because he loves you. He set his love on you. And sometimes, I, sometimes even now, there's a tendency, I think, maybe it's kind of hidden uh, among us, maybe, to think that God, you know, we've come to Christ because we're a little smarter than other people. We figured it out, right? Well, dear friend, it isn't because you're that smart. Surely it isn't because you're all that nice. It's not because you'll make such a model Christian. Where would the world be without you? It's because he loves you. It's not performance-based. It's not merit-based. He calls you to himself for his own glory because he loves you, which also means that if you're a rascal, he's not going to get rid of you like you, you don't earn it anymore. It, it's not the way grace works. So, so the treasured possession, I, I love the way that that is expressed in the text. I'm going to move on. I want to go back to Exodus 34 for this next uh, little comment about God. This is, a, in a paragraph, God's self-revelation, um, Exodus 34. I went right by it. And to place this text in its, in its context, you will want to remember that in the book of Exodus, of course, coming out of Egypt, but this is the visit to Mount Sinai, the giving of Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And um, that's the moment Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, God's people sin egregiously, way over the line, all kinds of immorality and terrible things. Moses comes down the mountain, sees all this terrible stuff taking place, throws down the tablets, you remember, right? It shatters them. It's like the, the law has been broken, and symbolically, it's not that he has a temper tantrum, necessarily, but the law, the ten words, have been broken, and he sh- they, they're shattered, Indeed. Well, God calls Moses to come back up. They deal with all of that, the calf and so on. Moses is going to go back up the mountain. God's going to give him again the ten words on other tablets of stone. And in that context, you come to Exodus 34, and God tells Moses what he's like. And listen, this is a paragraph of good news. It's good news. You might read part of it and go, I don't know if that's good news or not. It is good news. So here's what God God says about himself in verse 8. Verse 6, rather. Sorry. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed. Here's God speaking. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, loyal of faithful of covenant faithfulness and his faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Elsewhere is included the line of to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And you might read that and say, well, I thought you said this was good news. It is. It is good news. The first part you quickly recognize as good news because you want God to deal with you like this, don't you? You, you, you do. 
Um, my goodness, merciful, gracious, slow to anger. I have on your study sheet the, the long-suffering patience of our merciful God. God tells us what he's like. I, I consider the second half of that also to be good news about dealing with sin. He'll by no means clear the guilty. Why is that good news? I'll tell you why. Because this tells you that God is just. Do you want to live in a universe run by an unjust God? Do you want that? Really? I don't think you do. No, God is a just God. He doesn't just ignore sin. He can't just ignore sin. It's all dealt with at the cross of Jesus. You look at this and say, wow, I mean, sobering things, visiting the iniquity of the children. Man, sin has consequences. It absolutely does. Now, I, I am one of those who believes that when you come to Christ, grace interrupts this cycle. That's the deal. Grace can interrupt this pattern of sin. It really does. So I know there's a lot written and said and so on about generational sin. I, I, I get it, read it, and so on. I believe God's grace can interrupt that very much. Well, I come back then to Second Chronicles 36, uh, where we started a moment ago, and I just, just pull the other theme, the righteous judgment. Uh, 2 Chronicles 36, 15, uh, 16, it, it's very clear what they've done and how God responds. They've ignored God repeatedly. Okay, so you got that paragraph. Got it? You ready? So, so history then, full of the faithfulness of God and, and our human sin. Now, you go to that next section in here. We'll spend the rest of our moments here this morning under this heading. What shall we do? What should we do when darkness is our fault? And I, I hasten to say, said it already, said it last week. I say it again now. Not all sin and darkness, not all difficulty, that is, is our fault. We live in a fallen world. And as we mentioned last week, sin, illness, death, the, the injury of other people to us and our injuries to them, verbal or otherwise, we live in that kind of a world and not all difficulty, not all times of darkness are our fault. But in the play we're looking at, and in Second Chronicles 36, they're entering a season of darkness, and it is their fault. It is their fault. It is. Now, often when we come to that horrible realization that we had something to do with it, we quickly become math experts. 5% of it was my fault. 95% was that person's fault. That's what I mean. We quickly learn fractions. Clearly, it wasn't all my fault. And let me just divvy it up. It was my parents, it was that person, this, the culture around it. And okay, perhaps, maybe a little bit of it was mine. I mean, come on. Isn't that what we do? Never like math in school until it comes to sin. And then we, we love it. Well, here's the thing. There are moments when we are, in fact, culpable. Something to own. And I really believe this, as long as we're doing math, we're really not going to make progress. If we're busy saying his fault, their fault, the world, uh, genetics, et cetera, et cetera, we're really not going to make a lot of progress until we get to the place where we say, okay, that aside, I need to think about the part that's mine. Okay? I think at this point, we're able to finally start making some progress before God. To help us think about this, I want to go to 2 Corinthians 7, shifting all the way from Old Testament to New. This is one of the paragraphs I think that's most helpful in all of the Bible in helping us to think deeply about two kinds of sorrow, as I put this on your study notes. Two kinds of sorrow identified here in the text. The sorrow of the world, and as you see in the text here, godly sorrow. There are two types of sorrow 
they might look the same or similar. That is, they both might involve feeling bad, they might involve tears, they might involve pledges to do better, but one is repentance and the other isn't. And I want you to think with me about this today, okay? So um, under that first heading, you see me identifying the two kinds of sorrow, and I want you to have those in mind as I read the text, worldly sorrow, sorrow of the world, and godly sorrow. But I want to read then 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 13, and those initial verses kind of lead us into the text, and they say some things that are really important about God. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even though I made you, now watch it here, even though I made you grieve with my letter, Paul had written a a pretty strongly worded letter of correction. He says, uh, even though I made you grieve with my letter, I didn't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not not because you were grieved, now watch this line, but because you were grieved into repenting. So there was a grief that wasn't repenting, that became repenting. So there's a difference. You were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And he's going to define it. What are we talking about? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, that is a restored relationship with God, salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It might not be initial death like physical death, but you know what I mean by a, you're living in death. Some people are living in a state of death. Worldly grief takes you there. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Here's what godly grief does. See what, uh, also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it's not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you, in the sight of God, therefore, we are comforted. And he, he goes on from there. Now, uh, I have just a couple of examples of, of sorrow or regret that are not repentance. There are others in the Bible. Here are two. I'll let you look up that text, those texts yourself. One is King Saul, who egregiously sinned against God, and he was sorry for it. He, listen, he was sorry for it, but he didn't repent you'll see a difference drawn in 1 Samuel 15. Likewise, Esau, remember, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, who afterward deeply regretted it. Hebrews tells us he, he, he sought repentance with tears, but he couldn't find it. That is, he, he, was, he was sorry. He wept over his dumb choice, but he, he did not repent. So there's a difference drawn between worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. 
Now, if you switch to the other side of the page, I want to differentiate these two a little bit further. So godly sorrow leads to true repentance. So sorrow of the world that, by the way, is often focused around how bad I feel. How bad? I, I don't like feeling bad. Do you like feeling bad? It's terrible. I feel bad about feeling bad. And especially if you're a parent and your, your child does something they ought not do, we don't like it when our kids feel bad. So quickly we rush to them and say, oh, don't feel bad. You know, God might be working in their heart about repentance, and we quickly go to them and say, oh, don't worry, it's not nearly that bad. Other kids are much worse. We certainly don't want our kids feeling bad. It's going to ruin their self-esteem or confidence or something. And in a sense, it is my conviction, we often rob our children of learning repentance. And by the way, I think we do that to ourselves too. I think we, we often run away from that deep work of the Spirit of God that produces repentance in our hearts. Repentance isn't just a moment. I think there's a process of it. And because it involves thinking and grieving and feeling, maybe feeling bad, we don't like that. We don't have much tolerance for feeling bad. So we quickly nip it in the bud with excuses. Oh, tell me this isn't you, but I know it is. I'm not nearly as bad as so-and-so. It was probably more their fault, the math expert thing again. I didn't really mean it. We, we, we hurry to, run, to get excuses and reasons why I didn't really offend God. Think about this. Well, I think we, we sometimes nip true repentance in the bud rather than let it have its deep cleansing work on our soul. We're, and we're the worse for it. So if you look at this next little paragraph, this flows right out of the text as you see the difference between the two types of grief and what it looks like in real life. So work with me here. In contrast to this worldly sorrow, godly sorrow leads to true repentance. Now I'm using a term here, penance, as contrasted with repentance. These are not the same, though they sound the same, same root words. Penance is not the same. Uh, penance is described here as those things like, like doing better. I'm going to try to do better. I won't do that again. I'm just going to try to, I'm certainly not going to try not to get caught again. That would be better. Trying harder, feeling bad, going to church more. I won't miss a day for months. Uh, Reforming, memorizing scripture. Those are all good things. Giving money, I suppose, to good causes. My deal is a person may apologize and even do penance, but not repent. I really want you to think about this, please. This is about the work of God in our souls. Um, to help us here now, um, I, was, I was reminded in processing all of this, a book I read, I neither recommend it nor, nor not recommend it. It's a Gary Chapman book. Um, Gary's the guy who gives us the five love languages. And if you look at his book list, there's five of a whole lot of things. He even has a thing in here about a five-gallon bucket. I thought, man, I think if I were you, I'd go with a six-gallon bucket or something. But five of everything, it's okay, Mr. Chapman. But what came to my mind as I was reflecting on this is a book I read last year related to our biblical counseling seminar where we dealt with the subject of forgiveness, what it is and what it isn't, if you remember that. How do you do it once you identify what it is? And he's got some things in here about how, how we as people often approach um, others when we do wrong. And he, he identifies five different, five different ways. Who knew? But one of those is, is, is some of us are wired when we offend another person to try to make it right. How can I make it right? That is making restitution. So we, we've offended somebody. We did, you know, said something we shouldn't have said, and we know it. And so we, 
We bake them cookies, chocolate chip. No, really, we do. We, we, we give them a gift, send them flowers, something that kind of makes up for it. You understand what I mean by this? I'm not against chocolate chip cookies or flowers. And husbands, if your wife likes flowers, not bad. But sometimes we transfer the same thing to God. I do something that offends God. Um, so I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to make a promise before God. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to give money to something, some missionary, someplace, something that says, here, God, see how sorry I am. Let me ask you, when you sin, does, does your 20 bucks in the offering plate or whatever it is, does that make up for your sin? What makes up for your sin? Christ. Listen, Christ in him alone. There's not a $20 bill or trips to church or, in, or, or, you know, pledges to make it better. I won't ever do that again. Promises that you may or may not keep. Those don't make up for our sin, do they? Songwriter uh, said it right. What, you know, nothing can for sin atone. What's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And another song, of course, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. No, I come in repentance. I come to him and I agree with God. You are right. My, my attitude there was so wrong. The words I said in my mind, I didn't say them out loud. I'm so glad, but I didn't. But in my heart, it was, it was so wrong. And you're, God, you're right. And Forgive me. Help me, help me, give me your grace to not, to, to, to not do that. Help me in my heart. I can't, I can't fix myself. So rather than saying, well, that was really pretty bad. I better give 20 bucks to the missionaries. No, no, penance tends to do that. And I have on your sheet here, uh, a person may apologize and not repent. You, you know this is true, don't you? Um, if you were raised, as, as I, with a house full of kids, you know, uh, something happens. It's clearly their fault. And a parent, speaking into the moment, says, now you apologize. And what do we do? We, we deeply and humbly... Re- no, we don't. We say, look, okay, fine, sorry. <laughs> Meaning it, of course, oh, my goodness sakes, paper thin. As soon as parent steps out of the room, we go, yeah, we'll get you later when mom goes to the store. Some other kind of exchange takes place. And... And, and we apologized, right? Right? Well, we certainly didn't repent. I often talk about this in pre-marriage counseling when I talk to a couple about how to have a good fight. I, I, this is part of the deal. Don't, don't apologize too soon. Why do I say that? I'll tell you. You know this in your relationship. Sometimes a, a, a too-quick apology is a manipulative ploy to avoid the truth. A person starts in by saying, you know what, you know, the other day when you, and this, and we quickly say, look, sorry, 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 look, look, I apologize. I'm so, I'm, anyway, what am I saying at that moment? I'm, I'm cutting it off. I'm saying, I don't want to hear anymore. Stop it right now. This is hurting too much. I get it. I won't do it again. I'll stop it. But I, I dare say, chances are good I have not repented. And the other person is left saying, I heard the words, I'm sorry, but somehow I'm uneasy. And you should be, because chances are you heard an apology, but you didn't see repentance. Because repentance involves a change of heart that's worked out in a changed life. 
So I'm not against apologies. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not saying don't apologize. I'm saying before we apologize, let, let's, have a, let's have some moments to hear. I want to hear fully the guilt that is mine and weigh it, think about it, and grieve it. And then when I say, honey, I'm so sorry. I, that, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I, I was thinking of me. I'm really sorry. Forgive me. Suddenly then it matters in a way that my sorry, 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 stop it doesn't. So apologies, not necessarily the same as repentance. Penance attempts to rob the cross of its power. Yes, penance expresses my pride. My good works will surely make up for my sin. Well, no, Christ, Christ alone can make up for my sin. I have a whole section there on what's it look like. Old Testament words, New Testament words. Some, just, some of you like dealing with words. I don't give you the words. It's fine. You can look them up yourself. But you see the idea behind them, turning to a different direction, a change of mind that results in a change of life. I mentioned your change may be incremental. Indeed, that's true. Sometimes we want people to straighten it up in 48 hours. Frankly, you don't straighten up in 48 hours. Highly unlikely the people you love will straighten it up in 48 hours either, nor will your children. Change is often incremental. It is. It's good that God is patient with us. Biblical repentance is built on a clear vision of God's glory. And I give you here two other references. Again, I'd love to have you take a look at Daniel 9 is a wonderful prayer of repentance. It's just a classic, really. Daniel owns sin before God. It's a prayer for national repentance. He says, oh God, here's what we've done. Here's what it looks like before you. And you are so right. You are so right to judge us for this. God, you're right. We're wrong. We confess that before you. We own it. It's a wonderful prayer of repentance. You should look at it and learn from it. Psalm 51, here are some things in that text. David, of course, writing after uh, egregious sin before God. Um, You see some elements here that are so important. I want to come down to that final section, responding to God. What does this have to do with Christmas? Why are we preaching this at Christmas? My goodness sakes. Well, uh, for one, it fits the story. Because God speaks in the darkness. Next week, we'll look at the prophets who spoke in the darkness. And what did they say? And the mercy that drips from the words of God through his prophets. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But for us, I look at this. um, I, I very much believe this. If we do not see and own our sin, we won't have much value for a Savior. If you don't think you're much of a sinner, you're not going to value a Savior. It'll be just another story to you. But to the degree that you see and own your own sinful heart and the, the, your, your tendency, right, to, 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 to turn aside, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. As long as you live in this life, there'll be a, a thing in you, a principle of sin that'll, that'll turn your feet, your, your mind, your heart. And, and until you own that before the Lord and plead for his mercy daily, you're not going to value Jesus a whole lot because you're going to think you've got this and you don't. And you need a savior every day you live. You wake up every single morning deeply in need of Jesus, whether you know it or not. You hear me? Every day you wake up, you, you should be saying, oh God, help me today. Help me today. Help me today. Um, repentance should be a more than a rare occurrence. I say it shouldn't, should not be Yes, it should not be a rare occurrence. I go there with Martin Luther. That's the first of the 95 theses that he nailed on the door of Castle Church, Wittenberg, uh, 1517. Sparked the Protestant Reformation. When our Lord and Master said repent, he meant your whole life of a believer should be one of repentance. Continually coming to the Lord. Continually coming to him. It humbles the heart. 
to do that. All right? Merry Christmas. We should repent more. There. What was the sermon about? That's it. We should repent more and love it. It humbles the heart. I want to pray for us. Would you stand with me, and I'll let you out of here. Father, I thank you so much for the call of Scripture to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ. Repentance, not really complete until we do both. Father, as we head out into another week, um, full of things we know not what even today, we think we know, but we don't. Our Father, would you turn our feet to you, give us humble hearts, prompt us when we sin to to quit doing math and to quit making excuses and, and quicker, quicker than we do to come to you and say, oh God, help me here. Forgive me for this. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross in my place. Help me to obey you more fully here. Let us, let us learn that as a rhythm of our lives, that Christ would be honored in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.